there has been research that the brain of somebody who's falling in love looks an awful lot like the brain of somebody with an untreated obsessive compulsive disorder. We live in a world in which we have highly romanticized notions about love and sex. And that if you have questions, if you don't understand, if you feel triggered, then it must be wrong. The problem must be that you've chosen the wrong person. Hi, this is Bianca. And this is Anna. Your hosts of Girl Talk Monday's podcast where we discuss female empowerment, love and relationships, and everything in between. In this podcast, we speak to founders of fashion businesses, content creators, entrepreneurs, psychologists, and authors to inspire women to reach and fulfill their dream careers. So welcome to Girl Talk Mondays! Today, we speak to Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Alexandra is a relationship psychologist and professor at Northwestern University who wrote the books Loving Bravely and Taking Sexy Back. In this episode, we talk about building relational self-awareness, the definition of love, and monogamy versus polyamory. First of all, thank you so much for having me on. It's lovely to connect with both of you in this way. You know, I um, I grew up sort of identifying as like a nerdy, smart girl. I was never particularly athletic or artistic. And I knew from when I was really little, I wanted to be a doctor. I thought I wanted to be a medical doctor. Went to college, started a pre-med course of study, and then I took a women's studies class. And it like blew my doors wide open. And I became really fascinated mm-hmm. about power and gender and race and body image and all of these avenues and shifted my focus from medicine to psychology and have not looked back. So I went right from college to getting my doctorate at Northwestern and counseling psychology. And um, so that program was a a clinical program and a research program. And um, I became really interested in studying love and sex and marriage and intimate relationships. And that has become a forum to look at all of the things that have always held my interest, like gender and power and race and sex Mm -hmm. and all of those questions, you know, exist within the context of an intimate partnership. And um, so now my career is is one in which I switch hats quite a bit. So um, in each of the things I do, I feel like enhances the other things I do. So I spend some of my time doing clinical work. I have a you know, a caseload of of clients, individuals and couples that I do therapy Mm -hmm. with. I I teach an undergraduate course at Northwestern called um, Building Loving and Lasting Relationships, Marriage 101. And I do things like this. I I I, I call myself a woman on a bridge. Like I translate research and clinical wisdom and academia into things that are really usable in people's lives. And so podcasts and writing self-help books and creating e-courses that are for the general public, these are all ways in which I get to do something that is so special to me, which is just connecting with like the end user and helping people understand who they are in their intimate relationships and make choices Mm -hmm. that feel really good and healthy to them. Those are the parts of my world. And I'm a a mama and a wife. And, um, and those parts are obviously dear to me too. Yeah, wearing all hats. It's amazing. I think this is such an important field as well. And we're going to get to that a bit later. But I think studying and actually understanding how you feel yourself in an intimate relationship is so important to just your overall happiness because everyone ends up being in a relationship and just how you're going to study, you know, law or physics or whatever career you want to be in 
understanding yourself and being really knowledgeable about all of this, I think it's crucial to a really happy and fulfilling life. It's also something that people, a lot of people don't ever think about or dive into. Um, so people really need to be educated on the topic and it's not taught in schools specifically. So it's just very interesting that you've decided to go down this field and that's really one of the huge reasons why we wanted to talk to you today. Exactly right. That we don't, you know, I'm I'm so curious, um, given that neither of you grew up in the U.S., I'm so curious about your, you know, sex and relationship education that you received growing up. Mm-hmm. But when I was working on my um, second book, which is about, and I've, you know, I've been studying, you know, love and sex, obviously, for decades. And when I'm working with my undergraduate students, I learned very quickly that my, that many of my college students were coming into my classroom with real significant gaps in their understanding yeah. about sexual health. And so I, I began very early in the Marriage 101 course to be layering in like sex education on top of relationship education, right? That those things go hand in hand. And you're exactly right, Anna, that, that we don't, these are oftentimes things that we don't learn in school, don't learn in our religious institutions. Our families aren't sure how to talk to us about that. And mm-hmm. the other kind of layer over the top of all of that is that we live in a world in which we have highly romanticized notions about love and sex. And that if you have questions, if you don't understand, if you feel triggered, then it must be wrong. The problem must be that you've chosen the wrong person, right? That's mm-hmm. the mythology that I feel like I spend so much time breaking down and reworking for people because that's like the mm-hmm. That's one of the really big ways in which the wind is at our face around this stuff is that we are, it confronts, right? Our confusion and our upset and our questions confront this idea that it shouldn't be like this, that romance mm-hmm. should be easy, organic, natural, flowing. That's what we're told basically from, from society and everyone around us. And nobody really digs in deeper onto you know, how you can make yourself have a successful relationship with a partner that you love and continue loving for a long time. It's it's very centered around, as you said, just the notion of perfection and nothing goes behind it, it seems like. It just happens. So we were actually going to ask you a bit about your books. We know that you have a few very successful um, reads that I actually am dying to read myself and I actually ordered them on Amazon. So it's gonna be very interesting to dive into those. But we wanted to ask you where the idea came from when you started writing Loving Bravely and Taking Sexy Back. Sure. Oh, these books, it's it's so, I don't know if you would have asked me in my twenties if I would have told you that I wanted to become an author, but I tell you what, it has been such a special part of my life. I, you know, I knew very early on in my career that I wanted to be like, consumer facing. So whenever, you know, media opportunities would come, I I work at a place called the Family Institute at Northwestern. And so when a media opportunity would come in, they wanted somebody to speak about, you know, something about parenting or dating, I'd be like, me, me, I'll do it. You know, I'm a Leo. I think that there's something about (laughs) me too. I'm also Leo. (laughs) I'm not afraid of the spotlight. I love the other thing is I am kind of um, like an adrenaline junkie. Like I, um, I do CrossFit. I, have done, you know, mud runs and triathlons. Like I kind of love that. I'm scared. How's it going to go? I do it. And then you get like the after effect of like, oh my God, I just did that. So I think that media work always kind of scratched that like neurophysiological itch for me. And so that, you know, as, as my media work was continuing to grow, it became really clear to me that a book would sort of, would be another way to reach the public and, and would be something that would be sort of expansive for me. What I didn't know is how incredibly 
like healing it would be for me, like all of what I would look at within myself as I figured out where I wanted to share my voice. And so Loving Bravely was born of a desire to help people, whether or not they're single, dating, married, like regardless of relationship stage, to give people a book that helps them understand the self in love. That's the heart Mm -hmm. of Loving Bravely. It's about relational self-awareness. Who are you in your intimate relationships? What do you bring to the table? Like, what is the pair of glasses that you wear that shapes how you experience intimate partnership? And so Mm -hmm. it's a lot about family of origin, the things that we learned Mm -hmm. from our families, who we needed needed to be in our families, the roles we had to take on, um, what we observed among the big people, how the big people talked about you know, talked to each other, how they handled difference, how they apologized and repaired when there was a misunderstanding. You know, we absorb all of these messages as little people, but we don't have a way of framing what we've taken in, right? It's a lot of implicit messages that just become the lens through which we experience intimate partnership, but we don't know what to call it. We don't know what to say about it. So that book is basically a journey through all of those messages to help kind of organize them and understand them and then ultimately take responsibility for them to move from reactivity that is born of, I don't understand, I just know that this feels yucky, to being like, okay, I get it. When you say this, I respond in this way because it reminds me of way back when, when I was little and I felt like this, and that changes the entire relational thing. Mm-hmm. So that's the birthplace of Loving Bravely. And so that mm-hmm. book is born into the world and it's so fun to see how it's landing for people, mm-hmm. how therapists are using it with their clients. So I've heard from so many therapists who basically use it as a curriculum. It's 20 lessons. Even after Loving Bravely was born though, it's like asking a mama who just had a baby, like, when's your next baby? And the mama's like, oh, I can't, I'm too exhausted. But even when people would ask, like, what's your next book? I kind of knew what was, what felt really unsaid. And that was a deeper conversation about the self in sexuality, like this, the erotic Mm -hmm. self, the sexual self, lack of understanding, impact of body image, all of this. And I felt like that was the next place I wanted to add my voice. And so that's what Taking Sexy Back is, is this really intimate journey for a woman or for somebody who loves a woman mm-hmm. into sort of the feminine erotic self in order to reclaim it, heal it, understand it. It's an amazing accomplishment. I think it's an amazing thing to actually put into practice. And hopefully you as well are able to like see the impact mm-hmm. in your students and in your clients afterwards as well. Do you think there's a difference between the notion of being in love versus love. The first place that I would go with that question is to talk about how very, very dynamic love is. It's not, um, it's not a static state of, a, you know, it's not a static state of being. And so mm-hmm. I think what can feel really confusing for people is that falling in love mm-hmm. is different than being in love. And there's been really interesting research, like, for example, from evolutionary psychologists like um, Dr. Helen Fisher, somebody who comes to mind, who talks mm-hmm. about how when we're falling in love, it's really like dopamine driven. Mm-hmm. It's almost, yeah. and if you've fallen in love, like, you know, there's like this sense of craving, there's rumination. There has been research that the brain of somebody who's falling in love looks an awful 
awful lot like the brain of somebody with an untreated obsessive compulsive disorder, just like the hamster wheel of ruminative mm-hmm. thoughts. And have they texted me? And are they going to text me? And mm-hmm. is my text longer than their text? And do I like them more than they like me? And what if I lose them? And all of that is normal and um, and expected. It's not, it's not how everybody falls in love. Some people step into love rather than falling into love. But for people mm-hmm. who fall in love and have that like highly dopamine driven butterflies in the stomach, mm-hmm process, it can be really hard to transition from that into loving somebody, which is far more driven by a neurochemical called oxytocin, which is, um, it's a bonding hormone, right? Dopamine is like this adventure high hormone. And oxytocin is, people call it the molecule of monogamy. It is what, it's what's released when we're snuggling with a partner. It's what's Mm -hmm. released when a mama is nursing a baby. It is, it's attachment. It's, I love how you smell. It's, I love this life we're building, but it's different than the butterflies in my tummy feeling. And so that process, that shift can feel really confusing for people who have been fed a steady dose of romantic ideas, which is that then the idea is that love should always feel the way it does in the beginning. And that's not how it goes. So we have to have a way of understanding that the process inside of us changes, but it doesn't become worse, right? There's something I've been married to the same man for 22 and a half years. And do I love him differently than I did in year one? Yes. Do I love him less? No. Do we need to actively work to cultivate connection and spontaneity and pleasure and joy? Yes. Mm -hmm. Does that happen because we're, you know, damaged or broken or doomed? No, it just is what it means to love somebody is that there needs to be engagement and investment. It doesn't just kind of happen to us. How would you actually, because I actually have a lot of friends that start dating someone, they feel they feel all these emotions, they get super, super involved, super excited about someone. And then a few months pass, and you just kind of, they land in this emotion that, you know, they don't know what to do anymore. They're not sure if it's the right thing. How do you differentiate between if it's not the right thing, or if you're just falling into another kind of phase of your feelings for each other? First thing I would do is is really normalize what we've just talked about because mm-hmm. I do think that when there is that sort of like normal and expected change, it can feel frightening. And so what we do is we import meaning that it must mean that I've chosen the wrong person. It must mean we aren't right for each other. So I want people to have that like basic understanding because that will help them challenge when when that story starts to creep in of like, oh, this must be the wrong person. I must have chosen wrong. I got to get out of here. They can say, no, wait a minute. I remember listening to Girl Talk Mondays and hearing this idea. And so let me just sit with that idea and see if that might be what's going on. And I don't know, it may be. It may be exactly, you know, on, on your example, it may be that this person is seeing red flags. They mm-hmm. are, there are significant problems. There's dishonesty. They are realizing this person is not caring for their own mental health. Mm-hmm. There's an addiction, you know, whatever. Like it may be that there actually are things that they didn't see in week one that they're now seeing that are problematic. But I also want to leave open the possibility that it's a normative change. And the other thing that happens is the more we establish trust and safety with somebody, the more we peel back the layers and we get to some more core parts of ourselves that get activated. So now that I'm not, you know, early on, I had a full face of makeup on and I was my most shining and sparkling self with you. And now you're seeing me without makeup. And now you're seeing me cry. And now you're seeing me scared. 
And what the hell does that stir up in me? Right? Mm-hmm. Who am I in your eyes if I'm not the shiny, sparkly, bubbly person? Like, can I can I trust you to see me and still value me and still respect me and still admire me? So it may be less about what I'm seeing in you in terms of red flags and more about what I'm scared of you seeing in me. And as I slow down and as I settle in, as an I unfold, what's it like to let you see me? And that is really, I think, where the question of actually being in love with someone versus just loving someone that's where it comes from because they will eventually get to know every part of you good and the bad and understand you deeply and you them and that's where you learn to love right the initial phase is more like an infatuation and you might not even get that with every partner that you're with you can fall in love over time with someone that you didn't have this crazy obsessive like you were explaining where you know you check your phone have you gotten this message it's almost like in my view it could be even toxic at the beginning to have this kind of chemical romance activated in you because you might not see things clearly. And I know this also from from the past and from my experience, you might just be overwhelmed in what this is and this fun romance and infatuation, but it's designed to be a short term fix. And then the long term is when you actually discover who the person really is. And are you a really good fit? Do your values align? It's a really good point. And I don't, you know, I have yet to see any research that tells us that this way of falling in love, you know, falling head over heels, like you're saying that highly chemical driven is better or worse than, you know, a friendship that evolves into a romance, which is mm-hmm. so interesting. That's That was yeah. my story with my husband is that we were friends and then we were oh. best friends and then we had some beers and made out and then I freaked <laughs> out and you know, it was one of those stories. And for many years in the Marriage 101 class, I would be ashamed or, and embarrassed to, to tell our origin story because because there was a, still a part of me that was holding on to the idea that falling in love is better than stepping into love. And so I would tell the story, but I would feel kind of embarrassed about it. And what I've noticed in recent years, I think, and I think it's reflective of how much hookup culture has really taken over, like this idea that you have sexual intimacy first, and then maybe you start to layer in emotional intimacy. I think because that has become the predominant narrative, especially for emerging adults, that then my story feels like a throwback or it feels like it's sweet, right? It feels like, oh my God, to be friends first. (gasps) That's really like, that seems really lovely to have like safety and knowledge and care before you like take an article of clothing off and you don't have to be (laughs) wasted because you are, you feel safe. You don't have to like numb yourself out or soothe your anxiety because you actually are Mm -hmm. with somebody who knows you and who is Mm -hmm. connected to you. So it's interesting Mm -hmm. to have watched my own relationship with my love story and how my students relate to my love story over, you know, over the two decades that I've been (laughs) telling it to college students. Following on from what we've said, in order to live in love, we must spend time actually studying what it takes to love and to be loved back. That kind of brings me to my next question. And I liked this quote that you posted on your Instagram. A strong, intimate partnership doesn't happen by accident or by chance. It is built and nurtured by two people who are willing to walk the talk. Are there any preconceived notions from, you know, your clients or your students, what you've seen that in order to have an intimate partnership and in order for it to be like a successful relationship, should it just be easy and organic and flow naturally? Why do you think there is the need to actually study love and to teach this and to really be aware of oneself? 
There's a field of study that's called attachment science that basically says that when we are little bitty babies, we attach to our caregivers like at a cellular physiological level. We are attached. We can, a little bitty baby um, can distinguish their mama's scent from other mama's mm -hmm. scent, right? It is like an early primal attachment. Yeah. And it's not just about this is the person who feeds me. It's this is the person who loves me. So love is actually something that we need the soothing the connection the safety like we need that okay so that was like the first and that at the time in the 50s and 60s when that science was being established it was radical like that was a radical idea because love was considered something like the domain of like poets and you know it just was mm -hmm. not like serious seriously something you would study so then we established okay so this is serious actually science the next generation of attachment researchers looked at how when we grow up we don't grow out of the need to feel safe and secure with somebody. We just transition. And when we create an intimate partnership, we bring in that same level of need that we have early on. So we never become, you know, I think especially like in more individualistic cultures like the US and like Sweden and the UK and France, we have a high value on independence, on standing on our own two feet. We're individualistic rather than collectivistic. So I think it's confronting for us to know that even when we're full grown, big, strong adults, we still need people. And so that's what romantic love activates in us. We need a partner. We need validation. We never outgrow our need for validation, but it's scary as hell. It stirs up what we maybe didn't get when we were little, right? Ways in which the people who were supposed to be soothing mm -hmm. us weren't able to soothe us because they were whatever lost in their own pain lost in their own addictions so we will replay those old dramas from when we were very little we'll replay those with our partners there's no way there's no way of getting around the fact that we bring emotional baggage into our relationships there's not mm -hmm. a partner mm -hmm. on earth who's going to come into a relationship with no baggage or just like a little tiny purse. <laughs> yeah. That's very true. We all bring in baggage. The question is, like which, what that Instagram quote was getting to is, the question is, are you going to be brave enough to open up the suitcases? And mm -hmm. are you going to be brave enough and caring enough to look inside of your partner's suitcase, right? Because mm -hmm. we were talking before, Anna, about letting ourselves be seen. Yeah. We said, yeah. But it's also about, can I see you as less than the shining, macho, handsome, slick, suave or whatever witty funny sharp you know lady can i see that in you can i see your rough edges and not freak out and see the ways in which you don't have it all figured out either do you think that toxic relationships are born out of this sense that you cannot bring yourself to even look at the other person and look at their baggage and understand them or what do you think it comes from I do think that, yeah. I think it also comes from one person can't do the work of both people, right? So this idea of relational self-awareness, it has to be two people. And what can be really challenging is if you have one person who's committed to doing the work and the other mm -hmm. person who is still very much in a space of like not wanting to be self-reflective, vulnerable, courageous, then there's a risk that I think to me a toxic relationship is when one person is trying to do the work of two. Right. Yeah. And sort of saying like, you know, if, if it's Bianca and I and and I'm not ready to do my work, then Bianca is going to start walking on eggshells because mm -hmm. she knows there's about eight different things that she can't say because mm -hmm. I will get defensive, flip it back on her, shut down because yeah. I'm not doing my work. Right. In a conscious relationship, Bianca says, listen, Alexandra, 
I have feedback for you. I know it's sort of like near a tender spot. So let me know when you're ready. Like, let me know when you're open to have a conversation because I want to be respectful of you, but I also need to bring something up because it's on my mind and it's bothering me. But if I, if I can't offer Bianca that, then she's going to end up either doing my work for me, like by over-functioning, biting her tongue, being hypervigilant to my moods and my availability, and she's going to exhaust herself and end up resentful. Mm -hmm. So communication is always so, so important because you can't mind read. You cannot know what's going on in the other person's mind, why they're acting a certain way or what they want. And open communication is so important. In order to have a successful relationship, you have to work on the relationship constantly. It's not just going to naturally fall into place. That's right. That's right. Mm -hmm. That's right. And you know, what I often see as a as a um, mistake that we make is this idea of like, these are just my feelings. I'm just expressing my feelings, right? That this is communication. This is how we communicate. And mm. communication is not a free for all. So I feel like a lot of like with my clients who've been socialized in the feminine, I feel like what I'm doing a lot of is refining, refining. Okay. So you have mm. something really important to say, your emotions do matter and it's not a free for all. So working on working on this researcher named Dr. John Gottman calls like a soft startup right? So saying, mm -hmm. so opening with, I love you. I love us. I have mm -hmm. something I want to share that I'm feeling inside of me that because I love us so much, I want us to talk about this together because you matter mm -hmm. so much. I want us to talk. So finding ways of entering that conversation with some humility and empathy and respect rather than just like, I'm upset. And therefore I get to say what I want, when I want and how I want. Mm -hmm. I'm going to use that in my relationship. That's a good way to start conversation. That's good. Yeah, it's being considerate <laughs> about the other person too. Yeah. yeah. But just because they're feelings doesn't mean we get to just sort of blah. Sometimes we do that if we have been biting our tongue. So we've been raised as a people pleaser. We may be biting our tongue and not even knowing we're biting our tongue. So we have let so much stuff accumulate that then by the time we do, it's like it all comes out and it's out of control. So mm. some of it is a learning how to notice when we are actually building up a sense of resentment, when we're saying yes, when we actually mean no, because none of that serves the relationship. If we have to say what the mask, what those have been socialized in the masculine, the communication problem that I feel like they're at most risk of making, explaining, rationalizing, instead of offering empathy. There was a guy back in, I don't know, the 80s or 90s, John Gray, he wrote a book called Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, and it sold... Mm about eight gajillion copies, because that was the whole premise is that, you know, we raise our boys to be fixers and problem solvers and doers and leaders. And that may be lovely in the boardroom, on the sports field, like in, in some realms, it is really unhelpful in an intimate partnership to respond to a partner's concern by explaining it, rationalizing it, telling the partner that actually it isn't that way. Mm -hmm. so, so I spend a ton of time talking to men and those who've been socialized in the masculine about actually what your partner needs. Like the medicine that is needed right now is actually just for you to reflect back to your partner what the hell you've just heard your partner say. Like that's mm -hmm. the medicine, that's empathy, but that is not how we raise our boys. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's having that emotional support and then vice versa. Like, you know, sometimes men actually want like suggestions or I don't know, I think it's understanding 
what you both want from the situation. Otherwise, you're going to end up like equally unhappy without realizing why the other person isn't happy. And it's because you're actually seeking like a different answer from that person. Such a good point. Right. And the way we can find out is just by asking. Okay, so you're, yeah. telling, you're telling me about a work problem. Like I can say, do you want, like, what are you wanting? Do you want empathy? Yeah. I've got loads of that. Do you want suggestions? Yeah. I have several of those. <laughs> like, what do you yeah. want? I have a menu of options of how I can support you, right? Like just asking, yeah. you, so helpful. It's like a TV remote. Like, what do you want today? (laughs) (laughs) That's right. And that's not, that's not being somehow like hollow or codependent. It's being attuned, right? It's saying like, I I don't know what you, what you want, but I, uh, but I want to know what you want. And maybe you don't know. So maybe I try some empathy and then you're like, oh, no, that doesn't feel right. Just (laughs) tell me what, you know, and maybe we have to kind of play around and see. And what might've worked on Tuesday may not work on Friday. So yeah. It's also important to know that it will be completely different with the different person. And every relationship is very different, even though you're still you and you're the same, you might grow and be, I feel like actually having like been in a really strong, well, I wouldn't say really strong relationship, but a very long relationship in the past that was more on the toxic side. And now being in a very strong relationship, but relatively new, I'm like a completely different person in them. Because in the toxic relationship, I couldn't really be myself. I was stepping on eggshells. I was trying to mold myself into this person to fit that ideal. And then now I'm actually learning so much about myself. I'm really aware of things. And there's a lot of open communication and development Mm. that this relationship is making me a better person versus one that makes me, you know, not as happy with myself. So I think you are completely different when you're in a relationship with different people. That's fascinating. I think that's really right that you have in your own your own story, you have within your own story these these different experiences where you feel um your how you're different based on how your partner's different and mm-hmm. how it creates a different atmosphere in your in your relationship. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about the question that Anna had asked before about how do you know when the shift um from falling in love to being in love is normal versus a red flag. And I was thinking about Bianca for mm-hmm. you, that there may be ways in which this relation, like it, it may feel in some ways confusing to you, like, like that your neurophysiology, I suspect is in a process of just quieting down because you are used, you were so used to walking on eggshells that I suspect mm-hmm. there's a part of you, like a vigilant Bianca who is like, when, <laughs> when is the shoe going to drop? What do I, I can just say what I need? Like there's a part of you I suspect that is confused and is starting to kind of like quiet down and settle in. And um, and that is to be expected. And I think for people who come out of, even when there's been like a tumultuous childhood where there was walking on eggshells in Mm -hmm. childhood and then maybe one or more tumultuous intimate relationships, then the healthy relationship feels incredibly confronting and it can feel boring. Like the word that comes up sometimes is boring. Like I'm bored. And so sometimes there the healing is actually you're not bored, you're safe and you don't know what the hell safety feels like because you haven't had it before. So it let yourself take some time to realize that you actually don't have to do the work for everybody. You don't have to stand guard all the time. Like you can come home, you can exhale. Mm-hmm. It's okay. Mm-hmm. That's a really important point because from coming from one drastic one to the next, I think it can oftentimes be very confusing. It's true to 
to get used to a different dynamic mm-hmm. and then vice versa you know if you were in a really good one but just amicably decided to to like separate and then you end up in something quite toxic it can also be very easy to lose yourself and difficult to you know hold on to to the person you were before that mm-hmm. and I think there's also a, a romanticized version of being in a relationship and mm. one of the questions we got from our audience was actually what if she didn't want to have a partner because there's so much pressure in you know you have to find the one and get married and maybe it's pressure from family or maybe it's pressure from all your friends around you who are getting married and having children but actually being in a relationship is so much work that either it can make you so much better because two together makes you stronger or it can actually make your life so much worse and so knowing when it's the right time to settle down and be in a relationship and what are your thoughts on like how do you know when you've found someone does that take a lot of time can some know it instantly I think so the first thing I want to say about this about your question which or your audience members question which is a really Mm -hmm. thoughtful one is that this is hard for her not because there's something wrong with her but because we literally are about 25 years into the idea that Marriage is now, uh, there's um, a sociologist named Andrew Turlin who says that marriage has become a capstone rather than a cornerstone. So for the massive duration of human history, it has been that you become, you know, you reach sexual maturity, you go through puberty, and then you get, you get married. You go from your family's home to your spouse's home. Like that has been what's been considered normal. You start having you know babies in your very, very young 20s, and that's normal. Like there's research, I um, cite this in my Marriage 101 class, like even as, as late as like the 1970s, which for you guys probably feels like a million years ago, but your parents, you know, like your parents were around in the seventies. Like yeah. even as recently, like the vast majority of people would say that, like in response to a survey question, like they would say that people who want to remain single and childless are neurotic, immoral, and sick. Like mm-hmm. that was the preponderant. Like that's how deep these messages go. That it was thought to be actually pathological to want to be single, to not want to have babies. Like what was considered literally capital N normal was you grow up, you get married, you have babies. Like that's the normal. So so anybody who is an emerging adult today, anybody who's in their 20s today was raised by people and has aunties and has, you know, parents and has grandparents who were raised with this idea that what is normal is that you grow up and the first step into adulthood is marriage right it's the it's the cornerstone not the capstone so so today's emerging adults today's 20 somethings and 30 somethings are the first generation truly to say actually i want to finish my education i want to have a home it's marriage maybe i'll do it but it's going to be a capstone it's going to be sort of the final piece that goes in place and not every i mean i think there still are people in their 20s and 30s who you know get married relatively young and then kind of go on to finish education and you know all of that mm-hmm. but it's like about a, a half a second old the idea that you would actually cohabit with one or more people before you get married that you would have you know so so this is really new so it's hard for this listener not because she doesn't have it figured out but because she's charting a course right she's part of a generation that is charting a course how does that land for with both of your experiences? I think that, that's spot on because it's very true that my grandparents, like my grandmother got married at, I don't know, 18 or 19. 
Um, although she did pursue, she had her first child and then she left her child with her parents who got married even younger while she moved to the south of France to actually study and get a medical degree. And she was really confident on having her own career, but she did already have a child. And then same than my parents also like my dad actually had me quite young in his late 20s, met my mom in his early 20s. And then our generation, it is a little bit different now. And a lot of people are getting married later, and they are focusing on themselves and their careers. And I think it doesn't really have to do with age, but rather it has to do with where you are in life. Mm -hmm. Are you content mm -hmm. with yourself? You know, are you financially stable and independent if that's what you're seeking towards? It depends on your goals and your personal ambitions before, you know, settling down and having a family because that takes a lot from you as well. And so you don't want to, in my view, like give everything to that if you haven't first fully lived and found what your passion is in life and your interests and knowing that you're actually financially and mentally capable of being at that stage and maybe the time won't come for certain people like maybe the person asking the question or I have some family members who just haven't settled down and gotten married and they are older now so it depends on the person yeah yeah my family is actually they've never really instilled this vision of me getting married and having x y and z amount of kids and doing this job um but they've always I think maybe this comes from their generation too, because they were pushed into that direction. They've always told me, think about your career, think about what you want in life, and then find someone that fits in with you. Mm -hmm. So I'm very thankful for that, that yeah. message from them, because I know from their parents, it was different probably. Yes. I'm so glad that you're bringing that part up because there, I do think, I do hear that story very often that because that if, if parents felt pushed into marriage and kids, they sometimes almost swing too far to the other side. I'm not saying that, I'm not saying that your parents did or have, it sounds like you feel in, instead of um, like, you just feel a lot of permission to create a, a mm. course that works for you. But I feel like mm. sometimes the message is even is, is beyond what Anna's parents did. And, and parents say, don't get married, don't have kids. I wish I mm. hadn't done that. I wish I had had something mm. for me. Mm. It's too, you're going to regret it. How do you know? You can't know. You're too young to know. And so there's, so sometimes I feel like there's almost like an overcorrection because they felt pressured. They will, they will go too far the other way. And then that can create kind of a paralysis in the, you know, 20 something or 30 something like, oh my God, how would I ever how would I know? And I, and I can't know, and I'm not old enough to know, and I'm not settled enough to know. And so I think that that can, that can be its own kind of set of constraints because the truth is that there's not, there's not like a, a, a 10 step process for determining if this is the one, right? There's some of it is a leap of faith. And some of it is that if the relationship is what you to make it to be, if girls grow up with that message that marriage actually isn't a surrender. I don't, I don't have to, as Bianca's grandmother did, I don't have to leave my baby, you know, to go get my medical degree. I can actually have a partnership where, where we flow back and forth and we, and we mm -hmm. celebrate each other's ambitions and accomplishments yeah. and need to caretake because the journey of parenthood offers profound lessons and meaning as well, right? There's not just meaning mm -hmm. from our careers, there's profound meaning and value in caretaking in um in you know shining light on a little person and so there's it's not like either an either or situation mm -hmm. 
Yeah, personally, for me, I mean, one of my big goals is to actually build a family of my own and have a dream life and a dream relationship. And I'm very much in the stages of knowing that, you know, I'm 25, I'm still young, and I'm still building my career. And that's very important to me. But at the same time, I like having a vision of my future and kind of planning towards that, almost as if I'm not really leaving it to chance. Like, I know I'm going to have a great husband. I know I'm going to have a great family. I'm just putting it out there because those are one of my goals. But would I be ready to do that now? Definitely not. What are your views on monogamy versus polyamory? And where does it fit into our society? Is it possible for someone to build long-term relationships in this way? Okay. (laughs) So, you know, the context here is that um, my field of study is still to this day called marriage and family therapy, right? It's some people call it couple and family therapy, but by and large, it's called marriage and family therapy. And within that umbrella of marriage, it has been completely assumed that marriage and sexual monogamy are synonymous. They are just Mm -hmm. the same thing. So when Mm -hmm. I trained, nobody ever talked to me about polyamory, open relationships, Mm -hmm. sexual non-monogamy. It was not part of my training. It was in fact, maybe six years ago that I sat at a professional conference, a marriage and family therapy conference, and and listened to a speaker talk about consensual non-monogamy. And I'll never Mm -hmm. forget the feeling. Like I felt like the ground was like shifting underneath. Like I almost felt dizzy. Like it was, it was so confronting to my notion of everything I thought I knew that it was like, it was dizzying. And that wasn't that long ago. And it's not, here's the thing. Consensual non-monogamy is not brand new, right? There's a book called The Ethical Slut. And it is, and it's like 20 year, it's like the 20 year anniversary edition. This is not a new book. And there are people who have been cultivating intentional polyamory for many, many, many years. They have just been marginalized and main, you know, sort of like mainstream society, I'm putting that in quotes, has been like, la, 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 like, we don't want to look at it. We don't want to listen to it. We don't want to see it. What's so <laughs> powerful to me is that those voices now are being brought in from the margins and, and everybody now gets a chance to actually think about what the hell, like, why do we choose sexual monogamy if we choose it? Because historically we've chosen it because it's been the only option on the remote (laughs) to use your image from before. Like it wasn't, what do you want? It was like, you get sexual monogamy. That's all you get. There's no Mm -hmm. question. Mm -hmm. And so we're, we're in this new era where we are, where we're figuring out how do you, it's, how do you help people make choices that serve themselves and that serve each other? And my sense of polyamory and consensual non-monogamy is it's not a free-for-all. It's, it's a set of agreements, which is actually what, what monogamy ought to be as a set of agreements and people understanding why we're choosing this, right? So I don't ever want somebody to choose consensual non-monogamy because they feel like it's woke or they feel like monogamy is somehow lame or they mm-hmm. feel pressured by a partner to choose it. I want people to choose it because to the best of their awareness, at this moment in their lives, this is the boundary that's going to work for them and serve their emotional, relational, and sexual health. That's why I want people to choose it, right? That, so to me, what's less important is whether you're monogamous or consensually non-monogamous. And what's more important is that you can articulate to yourself and to your partner the why. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That actually reminds me of an episode of Sex in the City 
when uh, Big and Carrie are sitting in their couch and they're talking about their marriage and how Charlotte, she said, you know, marriage is marriage. You cannot have a different marriage than everyone else. You have to sleep in the same bed. You have to have uh, monogamy. You have to have kids. Do you think that everyone is free to build their own vision of marriage? I Yeah, I think that's one of, it's the beauty of this time. Mm. That there's certainly much more, certainly much more. I call it um, a role to soul transition, right? We Historically, it was like, it was, this is what you have to do. That's mm -hmm. the role definition, right? Like the marriage is there and all you do is just plug in two people. But then they, but then you have a marriage. That's the role-based definition. We now are in these like soul-to-soul -soul relationships where it's like, what do you want? What's going to support your evolution? That's beautiful. The the caveat there is it's incredibly labor-intensive, right? If everything is up for grabs, if we have no preset features, right? There's nothing. There's no. It's like build it from the ground up and select every single feature and widget that you want. It's just, it's a lot of emotional and mental bandwidth. It's a lot of communication. It's a lot of agreement. It's a lot of refining because you're not cutting any corners. So I just think people need to know that. And, and it circles back to why relational and sexual self-awareness have to be the foundation of a soul to soul marriage or a soul to soul intimate relationship. I mean, this topic was relatively new to me also, because I did kind of have the same view. And I still do have the same view, almost like Charlotte in Sex and the City, where, you know, it's supposed to be a certain way, and you're supposed to live happily with this person and always have passion and sexual chemistry. But the reality is, after a certain amount of time being with a person, this sexual chemistry and intensity and passion, it will fade. And so the question is, how do you you know, rebuild that? And how do you make it as strong as it was in the first like one to two years, the honeymoon phase of the relationship? Mm -hmm. And is that maybe why people change and go for polyamory? Or is that something they've always liked? I think personally, it's not an interest of mine. And I'm so much more, you know, keen and interested on actually building up passion and keeping that sustainable mm -hmm. in the long term and really working hard towards it. But maybe that's actually where it fits in society is that people can't stay sexually like pleased for their whole life with this one person that they're married to. I think it certainly is the case that if people want to have passionate monogamy, right? Because I, think, I do think that there's a way in which a novel partner is going to like just the, the very nature of novelty is going to spike so much sort of like um, nervous excitement and energy that then, you know, fuels libido and fuels um, excitement that is one way like novelty does spike that. So that is one path. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. not, it, it is certainly possible to cultivate passionate monogamy. The, the cool thing is that our sexuality is always developing and changing, right? So it is, um, I said in my Ted talk that who we are sexually, you know, 25 is different than 45 is different than 65. So that's, that's kind of a cool thing is that we're never, our sexuality is never done. It's always evolving. And so mm -hmm. in that way, we never make the same love twice because we are always evolving and changing. So even the same two people can make different love, right? But it requires curiosity. It requires attunement. It requires imagination, so it's not going to be maybe as effortless as just like, oh my God, I'm so turned on because like, I have no idea what's going to happen next. This is a brand new person. It's totally edgy. It's totally taboo. It's totally transgressive. One thing that may be really beautiful about consensual non-monogamy is perhaps it will reduce incidences of 
non-consensual, non-monogamy, i.e. cheating. Yeah. Cheating, the sex in the sex and infidelity, people will be like, oh, it's the best sex of my life. Yeah, because it's completely taboo and transgressive. So maybe look at that rather than like, you know, rather than being like, it's this person. This person was like so hot. The connection was so strong. Okay, yeah, because you haven't ever like it's you're completely in secret and it's, you know, dangerous. Like that's neurophysiologically jacking you up. Rather than it's somehow, I think people confuse that to be like, it's it's my soulmate, it's romance, you know, it's meant to be. Actually, the last thing we wanted to talk about was forgiveness. And, um, you know, in relationships, sometimes things happen and you disagree on things, devastating things happen. Someone cheats, someone does something that you feel like you maybe couldn't forgive. What do you think is the road to start if you're willing to heal this with your partner if you're willing to start to work something out together even though you feel betrayed where would you start mm, that's a great question so one of our field's top researchers is dr susan johnson and she did um, a lot of research with couples who were in couples therapy post infidelity and so she was able to identify the key ingredient the the, the different the differentiator between the couples who were able to repair and the couples who couldn't repair. And that differentiator was the person who transgressed, their ability to be humble, open, and present in the face of the betrayed person's healing mm-hmm. process. Like that's the key ingredient. It's not about the it's it matters like it's less about the betrayed person's willingness and much more mm-hmm. about the person who transgressed their willingness to to just like hold a space, open up their arms and just hold a space for pain, for accountability and for witnessing. That's the thing that matters because that's what that's what even that's what creates even the possibility for the betrayed person to like dip their little baby toe into the water of forgiveness, which is risky as hell and completely courageous. Like the sessions that I get to have with couples who are trying to figure out if they're going to repair post-infidelity, it's seriously some of the most sacred work I ever get to do because to watch a person who's been hurt entertain the possibility of turning towards that person ever again, it's just, you know, I think I think people who, people who stay and try to repair oftentimes feel foolish and weak, but mm-hmm. I see it, I see it 180 degrees opposite. I think it's so, it's so brave. And it all rests on whether the person who did the harm is willing to be like, oh, I did harm. Okay, mm-hmm. let me figure out why I did harm. Let me figure yeah. out the impact of my harm. And let me just be present to what you need. That's honestly, that's so interesting. And I know a lot of our uh, followers actually asked that question. Oh. And they mentioned that either they hurt someone or they feel hurt and they just didn't know where to start in that scenario. But yeah, I think it just comes down to listening to each other mm-hmm. and really showing that you care for the other person. I think everything just comes back to that. That's yeah. what I keep, keep hearing. We did, um, you know, one of the projects that I'm involved with right now is a new app. It's called the Mind app, M-I-N-E. Oh, yeah. And it's, we're growing to be the first um, emotional network. So it's just, it's, it's oh, wow. content experts who are about emotional, relational, and sexual well-being. And so I do, you know, these different like four-part series. I always have got, you know, like a series of episodes that are going. So as I was prepping, I decided I was going to do a four-part apology series and then a four-part forgiveness series. 
And so I, I put that out to the team and we committed to it. And then I freaked out. I was like, oh my God, I'm going to spend four episodes on apology and four episodes on, on forgiveness. I think, I think I've overcommitted. And I tell you what, I'm. it has been so rich. I mean, we spent four weeks consecutively talking about apology and there's still more to say. It's a huge topic of how do you show up for repair? And now we're working on the flip side of it. How do you open yourself up to let go of hurt? So it's been, you know, it's just been a reminder to me that there's a lot of um, richness in both those parts, like saying I effed up. Yeah. I'm sorry. Like that's so, that's such mighty work there. And then on the other side to say, you're human, you know, and I am willing to step towards trusting you again. Mm Mm-hmm. That's oh, huge that's work on both sides. I mean, that mm-hmm. really takes, I think it takes a lot. It's one of the biggest challenges if you were to have this challenge in a, in a relationship, especially mm-hmm. that is long-term. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually, I'm, I've never like, I don't have this problem, but I'm really interested in listening actually to the sessions because I think one of the key things in life in general is being prepared before the problem happens. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. before you would come up in a situation where you know, you'd know you be faced with infidelity, either on your end or the other person, actually knowing how to deal with it if it were to come up is so crucial. I think that can like make or break your reaction too and that of the other person's. That's right. I think that's a really, I, I include this in my Marriage 101 course, the idea, and in my, um, in my e-course that we just launched, Intimate Relationships 101, the, mm-hmm. you know, sort of like infidelity prevention. We don't, we don't talk about that. And I think that's, again, part of the mythology is if it really is true love, you will never, ever feel attracted to another person again. Like you will just, which is mm-hmm. bullshit. Like the question, you know, we attraction is attraction. Like we don't have control over the energy of attraction. We have a hundred percent control over what we do with it. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. But I think that's yeah. one of the things that I think creates a vulnerability to cheating is, the idea that if it's true love, you don't ever feel any kind of attraction to anybody else. That that myth creates the conditions that put people at risk of cheating. I mean, that is what I used to believe in too. I'm quite naive and I'm quite, I wouldn't say I'm naive anymore, but I used to be when I was younger and I'm also a real romantic and I really believed in that. You know, if it's true love, you only have eyes for one person. You could never imagine doing anything like this. Mm-hmm. And life does show you otherwise. And I think this romantic ideal is, you know, it's nice and it makes me really happy to have this that I believe in. But at the same time, knowing where reality comes in is so important too. Amazing. Thank you so much. I honestly, I feel like I want to ask you a million questions about my own relationship now. (laughs) Yeah, this has just been so great. And I hope everyone listening can take a lot from this and also use this to improve their own relationship. Even in your friendships or your family, you can use a lot of these tips as well. And I definitely will. And for everyone listening, can you tell everyone where they can find you? Sure. The best place is my website, dralexandrasolomon.com. And there's links there to books and social media and the e-course. And I'm very active, as we were mentioning before. I'm active on Instagram as well. That's um, been a really fun space to, to just play with all of these ideas. Thank you for listening to our episode with Dr. Alexandra Solomon. We hope you found it insightful into the world of relationship psychology and that you will be able to use some of these thoughts and ideas to better your relationships. Until next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.